Well, good morning, Colonial. It is so good to see you all. Please turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark 6. While you're turning, uh, Dan just referenced that we've known each other a long time. That's true. In fact, I was realizing this morning as I was getting ready that Brent and Dan and I have known each other now for 25 years. You guys have really gotten old. That's weird. (laughs) Your wives still look young, but you two, you two, not so much. I'm kidding, mostly. Uh, No, I do love uh, Brent and Dan. I love all the pastors here. I love Colonial. For Jamie and I, coming here is always a joy because I've said this for years. I know when I've come up before and spoken, I've said the same thing, but it's true. For us, Colonial is like a second church family. We started here when we were first married, seminary here. There's so many familiar faces as I'm looking out across the crowd that I see, know, and love. So grateful for all of you, so I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning. As Dan mentioned, I'm with the Crisis Pregnancy Center of Tidewater now. I'm the Vice President of Strategic Initiatives. And so I've been asked to give you some updates and kind of call you to a little bit of the work we're doing there. So I'll do some of that later on, but I will give you a couple of updates now, particularly two things you can be praying about. Okay, I'm going to give you a uh, one item to praise God for and one item to be praying on our behalf about. Uh, the praise is this that despite all of the opposition that has come against us since the overturning of Roe in June of last year, we are standing firm. Um, It's been been quite a few months uh, for us there at CPC. We, you know, here in Virginia, nothing changed in terms of the law or uh, the access to abortion here in Virginia. Everything's the same as it was before the overturning of Roe. Uh, The only thing that really changed in any way, shape, or form was, was... the opposition targeted at us. Uh, We were the recipients of vandalism, uh, threats. We had an influx of fake patients using up our resources and trying to, like, catch us doing something we shouldn't, which let them try. I'm okay with that. Uh, We had a national news outlet decide to target pregnancy centers nationwide, but to do that, they picked us as their main punching bag. That was fun. Uh, we've been targeted by Google. They started filtering us out of some of their search results when women are searching for abortion. It, it's, been, it's been quite a, a few months. But, as I said, through it all, God has sustained us and we are standing firm. We haven't once closed our doors. We haven't once backed down from any of the things we're doing. And so we're so grateful for the prayers of so many of you. who We know you're praying for us and we can feel it and we're so grateful. So praise God with us for that. And then as a prayer request... Um, you know, we're not just standing firm. Our theme this year is stand firm and press on. So we're going to stand firm and press on. We're going to keep doing things to reach more women, men, and families here in Southampton Roads. And so this year we have two big projects that we're working on that I would ask your prayer uh, in relation to. One, we are opening what we're going to call our Great Expectations Parenting Support Center. Uh, Dan just mentioned our Great Expectations Parenting Program. It's a 20-week parenting class where Uh, The men and women who choose life, they get to come to this, and through the course of that class, they get education and information, a whole bunch of things. But one of the things they get in that class is material support, diapers and wipes and strollers and blankets and bibs and bottles and boopsies and bopsies and all the stuff that babies have, right? Babies don't travel light. We all know that. So they got all this stuff. And it's donated from people like you, right, who who give us diapers, gently used clothes. We don't take gently used diapers, but gently used clothes we'll take. Okay, we'll take that, and we'll, we, we distribute it out to these families, and it's a huge blessing to them. Thousands of items every year, where right now, all that stuff is stored in closets and, like, 
self-storage units all over Hampton Roads. It's a real logistical nightmare, and our, our classes are growing, and so we have purchased a, a, an office-slash-warehouse space in the Greenbrier area of Chesapeake, and we're going to convert that this year to a centralized processing, storage, and distribution center for that program. It's going to be a huge improvement on this, and so we're hoping that God will allow us to serve even more patients through that. So be in prayer for that parenting support center. And then also this one I think is even a little more exciting. Uh, If you know anything about us, we have five locations. Three of those five locations, the ones in Virginia Beach, Chesapeake, and Norfolk, are ultrasound clinics. So we have medical staff there. They can, you know, a woman can come in, get a pregnancy test, ultrasound, talk to a nurse, etc., Um, Our two other locations are satellite resource centers, meaning they do everything the other ones do, but without the medical. This year, our plan is to convert our Portsmouth location into an ultrasound clinic, our fourth ultrasound clinic. That'll open up our services to more women in Portsmouth and in Western Branch and all the way out to the Harborview area of Suffolk. So we're very excited about this. It's a big undertaking, but by God's grace, we're going to do it. So please be in prayer for both of those projects. And now, As good as both of those projects are, what I want you to hear this morning is that neither of them are ultimate. Because what is ultimate to us at CPC is the centrality of the gospel and the centrality of Jesus in absolutely everything we do. And to focus our hearts and minds on that this morning, I want to read Mark chapter 6, verses 33 to 44, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you're not there yet, turn to Mark 6. Please look at verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the, excuse me, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Will you bow your heads in prayer? Fathers, we come now to your word. We pray that you will be ultimate. Lord, there's so many things this morning that could distract our minds and our hearts, but I pray that you will help us to focus on the text and that you will make the message that Mark has for us about Jesus here crystal clear in the minds of every one of us. Lord, help me as I speak, guide my thoughts, my words. If there's anything that I shouldn't say this morning, strike it from my my mind. Lord, we want everyone who walks out of here today to be enamored with Jesus Christ, and so it's in his name we ask and pray. Amen. Our text this morning is one of those passages in the Bible that even unbelievers are familiar with. 
So you just read it for yourselves today. We're looking at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, it's just one of those stories that everyone seems to know, and particularly, I would assume, in a room such as this, it's one probably most of you are very familiar with. And so because I think I'm safe in assuming that so many of you are familiar with this particular story, I want to begin this sermon where I would normally end my sermon by asking you a question, and I don't want you to answer it out loud, but in your own heart and mind, here's your question. What is the point of this story? I want you to think about it for a moment. What is, the, what is the point of this story? In other words, when you read this little story here, what is it that you are supposed to learn uh, or see about Jesus? Why did Mark include it? And while you're thinking through your answer, let me give you a little trivia tidbit here just for your own personal enjoyment. As you look through the four Gospels, obviously there's lots of different stories about Jesus included in the four Gospels. You've got four different guys who are each choosing from the, no doubt, countless stories they could have picked from to to put their Gospel together. And as they do, each of them picks some different stories. So when you look at the four Gospels, there are some stories that only appear in one Gospel. There are some other stories that appear in two Gospels. There are a few stories that appear in three Gospels, but outside of the resurrection, the crucifixion, the end of the story, there are very few stories that show up in all four Gospels. This is one of those stories. So back to my question, what's the point of this story? Why is this story so important to Mark that he includes it here? And as I said, that would seem to be a, a fairly simple question. Except that it's not. So I don't want you to tell me your answer, of course, in any way, but my guess would be that if I were to go around this room and ask each of you to stand up and say, what did you think the point of this story was? I would get one of two basic main answers. Either, number one, I'd hear something about the miraculous nature of Jesus' provision. Okay, the emphasis would be on provision. That he, he was able to feed so many people with so little, right? He provided for them, or more generally, that Jesus is powerful, that he can do anything, that he can work miracles, he can create, that kind of an answer. So either provision or power, and truth be told, had you asked me the same question prior to 2014 when I first studied through and preached through this section at our church, you know, I I probably would have answered in a similar way. But when I did go through that study back then, I came to realize that that is not the point of this story at all. Not even close. Because if you think about it for just a moment, if you even just look back in your Bible, the reality is is that Mark, up to this point, through the first five chapters, has already shown us over and over and over again that Jesus is powerful. Okay, think about the different ways. One, he cast out demons. He did that with the the man, demon-possessed man in the synagogue in chapter 1. There was a group of people who gathered outside of Peter's house in chapter 1, and some of those were demon-possessed. He cast those out. The most famous of the stories is chapter uh, 5, right? Or, uh, yeah, 5, the garrison demoniac, right? The guy who had legion inside of him, the cast him out, and they went into the pigs. Remember that story? And in each of these instances, does Jesus have to, like, really fight it out with the demons? It's really difficult? No. He just says, leave, and they're like, see ya. They're gone. So he cast out demons. He heals the sick. Repeatedly in the first five chapters of Mark, you see him touching the leper and cleansing him in chapter 1. And think about that story because this is a guy who, because of his leprosy, his flesh is is rotting. It's a visible, 
a demonstration of power. Jesus says, be healed, and instantly his flesh is clean. Uh, or, or Peter's mother-in-law and many others at Peter's house in chapter 1. How about the paralytic lowered through the roof in chapter 2? Remember him? Jesus says, get up, and the guy gets up and walks away. Or the man with the withered hand in chapter 3. The woman with the issue of blood in chapter 5. Jesus is powerful. He can heal. How about, how about calming the sea? With his words. He's in the boat. He's asleep. The storm comes up. The disciples think they're going to die. And they're like, Jesus, don't you care? And he gets up and says, be still. And instantly, wind and wave obey. Still. That's power. Or probably the piece de la resistance, right? Chapter 5, he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. He walks in the room, and he gets there, and they're like, hey, you know, don't worry, she's just sleeping. The people laugh at him. He says, let's go. He walks in that room, and he says, little girl, arrives. Up. She gets. So he can cast out demons. He can heal the sick. He can calm the sea. He can raise the dead. How much more convincing are you going to need that Jesus is powerful? I mean, if at this point in Mark's gospel, you don't believe that, I I really don't know what much more Mark could do, perhaps other than telling you the story of Jesus' own resurrection. But outside of that, I, I think he's made it pretty clear. And as far as provision goes, sure, up to this point in Mark's gospel, we haven't specifically seen a provision type miracle, but we've seen him control nature. Does this really add that much? to our understanding of who Jesus is? I I don't think so. And so if these things are not the point, if that's not what Mark is trying to get you and I to see, then I come back to my original question and ask it again, what is the point? Why do Mark and all the other gospel writers include this particular story? And the fact that we cannot easily or quickly answer that question is, in my mind, a testament to the damage done Uh, to a lot of our understanding of Scripture by what I have jokingly come to call the flannel graph effect. Okay, everybody remember flannel graphs? I loved flannel graphs as a kid. They were so much fun, right? Our Sunday school teachers would use them to tell us stories. And I I use this in a joking way. It's not just flannel graphs that were the problem here. But our our teachers, our parents, would use these uh, kinds of tools to both tell and illustrate Bible stories. And I, look, I'm telling a Bible story this morning, and I'm going to illustrate it. I've got no problem with that. But the problem was that the way most of us learned these stories was in these encapsulated, disjointed kinds of ways. By encapsulated, I'm talking about there's nothing before or after. It's just the story in and of itself. Kind of like Little Red Riding Hood. Everybody knows that story. But have you ever thought what kind of awful parents send their little girl into the dark woods with a basket of food? They're basically making her bait. Or, or what kind of PTSD she must have had after being cut out of the belly of a wolf with an axe. The therapy she must have. Of course we don't think those things. Because they're not the point of the story. They're encapsul- it's an encapsulated story. You just hear the little story of the girl. She goes through the woods and the wolf and the whole thing. And, and that's, you're done. It's encapsulated. And we thought of our Bible stories in a lot the same way. And then we also think of them in a disjointed kind of way. And here I don't just mean with what came before or after, but I'm thinking even beyond that and how an individual story fits within the larger theme or purpose that an author intends, much less the larger theme and purpose that God himself intends across Scripture. We don't think of them having any kinds of connections. And I think this accurately describes the way many of us have read those stories in the past. And if we're honest, still read them to this day particularly this one. 
And so because of that, we miss the bigger picture of what's going on here. So I want to show you that bigger picture this morning. At least I want to try. Um, I don't have time to explain all of this. Uh, it took me three years to preach to Mark back then. You've got 40 minutes. So I, I simply would say to you that this particular story is near the beginning of a new section in Mark's gospel where Mark is trying to define for us, show us, prove to us that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. And he opens chapter 6 with the story of Jesus being rejected by his own at Nazareth, a foretelling of what's to come. He sends the disciples out two by two, right, to preach, a foretelling of what's to come. And then we see John the Baptist beheaded by Herod, which I think is even a foretelling of what's to come to Jesus, where he will be killed by Pilate. And after you see all of this, you begin to wonder, maybe is it worth following this guy? It's a high cost to follow Jesus. Is it, is it really worth it? And so I think to answer that question and show you, yes, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is the Christ. He's worth giving everything for. Mark begins with this particular story. And so what we're going to do is we're going to quickly walk through it one time just so you understand the surface details. And I'm going to have you note things. If you've got pen and paper, now's a good time to get it out because I'm going to have you note certain words, certain phrases along the way that we're going to ask questions about. And once we've gone through it that first time, we'll come through it quickly a second time to see Mark's larger point. The story picks up in verse 33 with many people seeing Jesus and his disciples leaving on a boat. At the end of the last story, the 12 disciples had just got back from this mission that Jesus has sent them out on of proclaiming the message of Jesus, doing the works of Jesus. And now they're back and they're giving Jesus a report of all that transpired while they were gone. And after hearing their report, Jesus decides in verse 31 that he and they should get away for a bit to rest because they are so inundated with people and so inundated with ministry that Mark tells us they don't even have time to eat, which is funny because we're about to go into an eating story. And so in verse 32, Mark tells us they get into a boat and they leave to go to a desolate place by themselves. Note the word desolate. There's the first word to put on your list with a question mark by it. Note the word desolate. They leave to go to this desolate place by themselves. That, of course, is the plan. But as you see here in verse 31, the crowds who see them leaving, the people who see them leaving, they don't, they don't really care about Jesus' plan. They see them going, and so they're like start running along the shoreline so they can meet him whenever he lands. And you might be thinking, well, where do they, or how do they know where he's going? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Maybe they can just see it. I mean, the lake's not that big, so it's possible they can just, you know, see the direction he's heading and they've got a good sense of where to go. Or maybe it's a place they knew he often went to and so they just head there. Either way, they run ahead and Mark indicates here that the, the crowd heading to this spot is growing larger as it moves along. Because when he notes here that when the crowd, they land, the crowd that's waiting for him has come from all the towns in that area. You can, you can almost picture, like, the first guy's taking off, and they're running along the shore, and some other guys are like, what are you doing? And they're like, Jesus, and they're like, oh, okay, and they run through town. Where are you guys going? Jesus, oh, and the crowd's swelling. So that by the time he gets there, by the time they go ashore, it has become a great crowd. And this is a little, another trivia tidbit for you. In Mark's gospel, crowds are almost always negative for Jesus. Whenever you see a crowd in Mark, you can, nine times out of ten, it's going to be negative. Occasionally there's a neutral crowd, but never, never are they positive. Okay, they're normally negative, and this time it's not just a crowd. Mark says it's a great crowd that is gathered in this desolate spot. 
to see and hear Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, I'd probably be frustrated if I was trying to get away and this crowd had gathered to see me. In fact, uh, that's not how Mark or Jesus responds at all, though, is it? He isn't frustrated. Mark tells us that he has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. That's your second little phrase to put on your list. They are sheep without a shepherd. That's an That's an interesting descriptor for Mark to use here for the crowd. Why did he pick this particular phrase? Hmm. We'll come back to that in a minute. So what does Jesus do? Well, he begins to teach them many things. The first thing he gives them is teaching. And I would love to know what he taught them that day. But you see here in the text, Mark doesn't record it. Mark doesn't even care. Luke, by the way, is the only one who gives us any indication of what the content of the teaching was that day, and he just says that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That's it. That's all we know. But none of the gospel writers care about the specifics. Mark bypasses all of that and jumps ahead to the end of the day. Mark writes that when it grew late, his disciples come to Jesus and are like, hey, I don't know if you've noticed where we're at, but this is a desolate place. And I don't know if you've looked at your watch recently, but uh, it's kind of getting late. Um, you know, they're so patronizing to him. Maybe we should send the people away so they can go out into the countryside and, and get something to eat. I don't know if this indicates that they're frustrated or if they're genuinely concerned. It doesn't really matter again because Mark bypasses any questions about that and goes right to Jesus' response. You give them something to eat. And I love, I love the honesty of the way that the gospel writers record the the words and responses of the disciples in moments like this, because the disciples do the very thing that I would have done if I had been in their shoes. They hear the response, and they turn around, and they're like looking at the crowd. They're doing some quick math in their head, and they're like, uh, hey, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? A, a, a denarii is about the equivalent of a working man's day, like daily wage. So a laborer out in the field, he works all day long. At the end of the day, he's going to get a denarii. Think of a, a modern day laborer. He's going to work all day. Whatever he makes that day, that's a denarii. Do you want us to go spend 200 days worth of income? Do you want us to go buy 8 to 10 months worth of income of uh, uh, bread? The, the question is somewhere on the spectrum between rhetorical and sarcastic. Like, you know, they clearly do not believe that this is possible. And, and, and please note, The disciples in this moment are not being pessimistic. They are being realistic. Jesus is the one who, by his comment to them, is being unrealistic. And so from here, it gets pretty simple. He asks them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. They go, look around. They find some food, probably only food around. Five loaves, two fish. And so in verse 39, Jesus commands the people to sit down in groups On the green grass. Mark the word green on your list. Why does Mark point out the color? Isn't that obvious? Why emphasize it? I don't know. We'll come back to that. And so they do. They sit in groups, Mark says, by hundreds and fifties. And again, I'll pause and just share something interesting here. There may be more going on in this scene than we realize at first in Mark's gospel. Uh, A lot of people believe that what you really see gathered this day is not just a group of people interested in hearing the words of Jesus, but really a a flash militia. That they in this moment feel, this is the time. 
This is the moment to revolt against Rome, and, and Jesus is going to lead us. He's going to be our deliverer from Rome. And there's some clues in the text that, that certainly indicate that. Number one, every story emphasizes the number of men. Every one. One gospel writer does mention that there are some women and children there, but there's no indication they're there in large numbers. Sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, this crowd was probably 20,000, right? If every man has his wife and two kids with him. Well, if that's true, yes. But again, there's no indication in the text that the women and children are there in large quantities. The emphasis is on the men. Number two, when they sit down, they sit in regimental-sized groups. Number three, John tells us that at the end of this episode, they rise up and try to take Jesus by force to make him king. And then number four, it may explain when you look to the next story here in Mark, which is the walking on water story, it may explain why Jesus tries to get the disciples out of there so quickly. Immediately, he's getting them in a boat. Okay, I I don't know if that's true, but I will say it does make sense that maybe this crowd is like a flash militia that's gathered together thinking the uh, the revolution is starting today kind of thing. Regardless, they sit down in these very ordered groups. And I want you to note four words. It's going to be the next four words you put on your list. Put them all together. uh, Four words here in what happens next in verse 41. He takes the bread and fish, looks up to heaven. He says a blessing, second word. He breaks the loaves, and he gave them. Gave is your fourth word to the disciples. So he takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives. Notice the four words in their progression. Does the same with the fish, and now we have the grand finale. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate until they were full. He didn't just break them into little pieces. Everybody gets a you know crumb. No, he... He fills them up. A miracle has occurred. He has fed the multitudes in this desolate place. In fact, he, he's like, he's like my, my wife Jamie. Whenever we have people over, he's made too much. Okay, There's, He's got leftovers. There's 12 baskets of leftovers at the end of this event. Nobody can eat anymore. They are stuffed. And then finally, Mark tells us the size of the crowd. He just fed 5,000 men. Wow. Right? Wow. Yay. All right, now that you understand the surface details and you've got your list of words you've noted, can we walk through this a a second time at a little deeper level? Because I am confident that if you had been there that day, or if you had been one of Mark's original readers, Jewish readers, I think that you would have understood the significance of the setting of the words and of the events of this story that just transpired before you in a way that is completely different than most of us have ever thought about it before. And to help you see it, I'll begin by asking a trivia question. It's half Old Testament history, uh, half uh, first century Jewish history, uh, just to see if you can understand this. If you do, it'll help you out a lot. Here's the question. Don't answer it out loud. Who are some of the most famous Old Testament characters in the minds of the average person of Jesus' day. All right, you got a whole Old Testament to pick from, lots and lots of characters, but if you were a Jew living in the first century at the time of Jesus, of all of those Old Testament characters, who are the ones that are going to be the most famous, most important, most significant to you at this particular moment? I don't know what your answer is. I'll tell you what I think the answer is. I think the answer is Moses and Elijah slash Elisha. Those two kind of go together. It's hard to separate them, okay? Those two. 
Moses and Elijah, of course, are the two characters who appear on the mountain transfiguration. Jesus is up there. Uh, Peter, James, and John see them. They're like, hey, let's build some booze. This is great. T- short-term rentals, right? It's up there right off the bat. And, you know, they're excited about having Moses and Elijah here. When uh, along the way, as Jesus says to his disciples occasionally, who do people say that I am? One of the people that the, the, the one of the characters that the people of, of Jesus' day often confuse him with is Elijah. Some say you're Elijah or one of the prophets. So in the mind of a first century Jew, these servants of God epitomize the Old Testament and the promises of God to his people, particularly for deliverance. Moses, of course, was the great deliverer, the one who brought God's law to the people, the the one who brought them the old covenant. Moses is the father of the nation. Abraham's the father of the people, but Moses is the father of the nation, the deliverer. And Elijah and Elisha, some of, if not the greatest of the prophets, the greatest of the messengers of God, they're the ones who called God's people back to faithfulness to the old covenant. And these characters are associated with the Messiah in the minds of so many people, the average uh, person's mind in Jesus' day. Moses, for example, prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.15 that one day God would raise up a prophet like him from among the people in whose mouth God would put his words. Elijah, of course, is the one who's taken up by God into heaven who doesn't experience death. And as he goes up, his mantle falls on Elisha who gets a double portion of his power. And so the people are expecting a prophet like Moses, like Elijah or Elisha, to arise and that this person will either be the Messiah or will be the one who ushers in or makes the way for the Messiah. It is with that expectation and understanding in mind then that I'd ask you to consider this story again. Where are they at? It's noted on your list, I think. They're in a desolate place. They're in a wilderness Who is with Jesus? Well, it's a great number of the people of Israel who have gathered. A crowd so large it overwhelms the disciples. What's the first thing that Jesus gives them in the wilderness? Teaching. He gives them God's words. And when they get hungry, what does he do? He provides food in the wilderness miraculously. Is this reminding anyone of anything any flannel graph stories popping back in your head right now that you can remember from the Old Testament? Because it should be reminding you of Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, all three. I mean, Moses, of course, is the one who led the people of Israel, these great crowds, no doubt, out of Egypt into the wilderness. He's their deliverer. He's their savior. In Numbers 27, 17, as Moses is looking out on the crowd, He has compassion on them and he asks God to give them a leader after him so that they will not be what? Sheep without a shepherd. Oh, Jesus is tying back to Numbers 27. Mark is making that connection for us. The first thing Moses gives them, of course, when they get out to the desert are the words of God at Sinai, those ten words, the ten commandments along with the rest of the law. Those are God's first provision to his people. But eventually we know they run out of food, and so Moses pleads with God to provide. And God gives them manna, bread, and quail, meat, to fill their stomachs. 
Think also of Elijah and Elisha. After delivering God's message to his people, God sends a drought as a punishment and the evil of the land and its leaders. He turns the land into a wilderness, but yet he provides for Elijah and the widow by doing what? Multiplying food. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44, Elisha, who of course we know received that double portion of Elijah's power, he's got this situation where these hundred men come to him. And his servant's walking in the door with some bread and some, some ears of grain, and he's like, hey, put it before them. And he's like, I can't, this isn't enough to feed this crowd. Put it before them because the Lord has said, You'll, we'll all eat and have some left. And he does it, and guess what? They all eat. And they have some left, according to the word of the Lord. Listen, here's my point. I think that if you had been there that day, or if you had been one of Mark's original Jewish readers, you would have been familiar enough with those Old Testament stories and characters that you would have instantly seen the obvious connections that Mark is making between those events and this one here in these events. Because what happened with Moses and what happened with Elijah and with Elisha, guess what? It's happening again. But this time, it's different and better. This time, it's not some prophet saying, thus says the Lord. This time, Jesus says, I say to you. So he's not the conduit of truth this time. He's the source of truth. This time, it's not someone praying to God, asking that God would somehow miraculously feed the people. This time, Jesus takes the, the burden of provision on himself. He doesn't pray, he just provides. Yes, it's like those Old Testament characters and stories, but something greater and better than Moses and Elijah and Elisha is here. He didn't just come to deliver the people from Roman rule, which is very likely what this crowd wanted that day. I agree. He didn't just come to do that. He came to deliver them from Satan's rule, from sin's rule. He is leading them in a new and better exodus than anything Moses ever did. He didn't just come to call the people back to faithfulness to the old covenant. He came to establish a new covenant with all people that's based on his own faithfulness. The sacrificing of himself, his blood on the cross for our sins. And what Mark is showing us here is that this Jesus, this Messiah, this Christ, this promised one is the great and better deliverer of the people of God that the Old Testament had promised. Folks, this scene is dripping with Old Testament imagery and meaning, all pointing together to the fact that this man, Jesus, is the promised Messiah. My goodness, think, think about that little comment in verse 39 I told you to note about him making them sit down in the green grass. And I asked the question, why emphasize the color of the grass? What, what's the point with that? Wait a minute, okay, hold on. We have a shepherd making the sheep sit in the green grass by the waters that he has stilled. I remind you of anything? The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul later. He sets a table before me later. My cup overflows. Can you see the connections, the imagery that he's not just a man? That he is the Messiah, that he is Yahweh himself. 
come to his people. He's bringing in these words and images and ideas from all over the Old Testament that are all pointing to this one inescapable conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the better and greater prophet promised throughout the Old Testament. And he's come to deliver the people from their sins and to institute that new covenant for all who come to God in faith. Wow. So guess what? Yeah. The cost may be high. Remember, that's how this started at the beginning of chapter 6. It's going to cost to follow this Messiah. That cost may be high, but Jesus is worth it. It may cost us everything, but this is the guy who can set tables in the wilderness. Come on. It, It may cost you more than you thought you could ever pay, but he is better and he is worth it. I think Mark, this is cool, I think Mark even sneaks in a little something into this story that points that out in an even kind of more more unique way. Because as I've already shown you here, the majority of this story is pointing backwards, right, to all that Old Testament imagery that God's going to send the greater, better prophet uh, to come and rescue people from their sins. But I think hidden in verse 41 is a little clue that points us forward to the same thing. I asked you to take note of four words that he took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. Think about it. As he begins this meal with this crowd on this day, talking about the kingdom of God, this is what he does with them. And if you jump ahead to Mark 14 to the Last Supper, what do you see Jesus doing at the beginning of that meal? As they were eating, he took bread. After blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. He took a cup and when he given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. It's about the kingdom again. (laughs) Isn't Isn't it interesting that Luke told us he talked about the kingdom that day? If we understand the Last Supper as being a foretaste of that messianic meal we'll enjoy with Jesus for all time, in a way you could see the feeding of the 5,000 as almost like a foretaste of the foretaste. Kind of. It's a sign to the people and to us that God has come back to his people to deliver them just as he promised. Now, what does all of that have to do with the centrality of the gospel and the centrality of Jesus at the work of CPC? Because that's where I started this, right? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a good question. Um, you know, I told you at the beginning that I think a lot of people, when they read this story we've read here in Mark, Feeding of the 5,000, they think, wow, Jesus is powerful. Wow, Jesus is amazing. Jesus can provide. And of course, all these things are true. But what I've just spent the past 30 minutes or so doing is trying to convince you that Mark is really trying to do far more than that, that he's really trying to show us that Jesus is the central figure of all Scripture, uh, that he's the fulfillment of the promises of God to his people and the ultimate Savior of all humanity. So watch this. Watch this. At CPC, we do a lot of good. I'm not just patting us on the back. I mean, it's genuine good. Real good. Uh, We do a lot of amazing things. For example, did you know that this past Christmas, just a month ago here, at least, at least 655 children celebrated their first Christmas because of our ministry? Maybe more. You know, we can't count everybody. Not everybody tells us. But 655 that we know of had their first Christmas. It's kind of amazing. Did you know that last year, 417 families, that's a record number, by the way, 
went through our parenting class program and received that material support I talked about at the beginning, you're talking thousands of diapers and clothes and stuff provided to these families. Talk about provision. Amazing things, right? Genuine good, right? Well, listen very carefully to this. Toby DeBoss, our president, says this all the time, and I love it. If that is all we do at CPC, then we are just propping up dead people. Think about it. It's good, right? We all agree? Good stuff. But if that's all we do, then we are just propping up dead people because as genuinely good as all of those things are, they are not ultimate because Jesus is better than all of it. So offering them services is good, but offering them Jesus is better. Giving them diapers is good, but giving them the gospel is better. Calling these moms, dads, and families to choose life, it is so good. But calling them to choose eternal life is so much better. Without the gospel, without Christ at the center of everything we do at CPC, All we could do is prop up dead people, and that's not okay with us. Like Mark, we want to show every man, woman, and family who comes through our doors that we can serve that Jesus is the central figure of all Scripture, that He is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God to His people, and that He is the ultimate Savior of all humanity. And now I'm going to land the plane in this room. But Colonial, we can't do it without you. We can't. You see, we have a a major limitation. We're not the local church. And we have no intention of usurping the church's role. It's just not who we are. So we're going to make the gospel central in everything we do. We're going to share the gospel with everyone we can. But we need the church. We need believers here in Southampton Roads, you, to come alongside our patients, to come alongside our staff, and to come alongside our ministry and help us save lives, spare hearts, and spread the gospel to everyone we can so that they can learn about this Jesus that we have seen so clearly this morning. And so I'm going to give you two ways to do that today. And I'm going to be bold with you because I know you and love you so much. First, um, a few weeks ago, Nick and Jenny Williamson, who I don't know, they told you about an opportunity to join a mission team put together by Colonial to come alongside our parents in their parenting class program. And this isn't just about teaching them about, you know, infant CPR and prenatal care and stuff like that. We do that, but it's not what it's about. It's about putting a group of believers around these parents and walking out life with them with gospel intentionality. It's our desire to see our patients hear the gospel, see the gospel, be surrounded by the gospel, and hopefully folded into the life of a gospel-preaching church. And of all the churches in Hampton Roads that I would love to see do this, there's none more than Colonial. Because I know what kind of church you are. I know the quality of church you are. I know the quality of the pastors of this church. I know the quality of so many you of you. I want to see you come alongside our patients. But if I understand correctly, as of this moment, not enough people have stepped forward to help. And so, if you're here today and you are willing to live on mission 
a short-term missions trip in your own backyard, then please sign up for this. We're the mission agency, and we've got the people group. We just need the missionaries. We just, they're coming to us asking for help. Where else do you get unbelievers like that in the world? Where they're saying, please help us. We've got them. We need someone to answer the call. So please consider signing up for this because I know you guys would be amazing. Second, I also recognize that there's a reality because that mission team can only be about 10 people. That's it. And there's a lot more than 10 in here. You guys are like a great crowd to me, all right? More than 10 in here. All of you can do something. Maybe not all can be on the mission team, but all of you can do something to help us at CPC in this mission of making much of Jesus here in Southampton Road. So maybe you can volunteer to come in the office and fold envelopes. Maybe you can, you're retired and you can do handyman stuff. Maybe you can be a part of our Walk for Life. We've got these two big projects coming up. We're going to need help raising funds. Maybe you can fill a baby bottle. Maybe you can provide those diapers and, and clothes and all the stuff we give away. Or maybe you've got something completely different in mind. Whatever it is, it takes all of us working together. It really does. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. At the end of the service, Jasmine Bowser is going to be out at the table on the left in the lobby. And she's going to have these little contact cards. And I want you to go up to her. I hope she has a line. I hope she's overwhelmed. Make her feel like the disciples that day, okay? I hope she's overwhelmed. You're going to go up to there, and you're going to fill one of these out. And at the bottom, you're going to say, you know, I want to learn about volunteering. Or I want to learn about the walk for life. I want to be a part. Or, or if you want to be a part of the mission team, we don't have a box for that. Just write across the bottom, real big mission team, and we'll get you connected. But we want everyone to do something here at Colonial. I get it. I get it. The cost of following Jesus, it can be high. But what I hope you've seen this morning is that he is worth it because he is better than anything and everything you could possibly imagine. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we thank you for the word we have seen this morning. Thank you for Mark's telling of this story and for all of the connections that are so clearly there in front of us. What we recognize today is that you are better. You're better than every Old Testament character and story. You've come to offer us so much more. You are worth giving our all for. And so I pray that you will work this morning in the hearts and minds of these people, that Colonial will be able to put together this mission team, and that many people will be engaged in the work of saving lives, sparing hearts, and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ here in Southampton Roads through CPC. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.